Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. This morning, we're going to be talking about how we're shaped by our memories. The truth is, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. And when people ask me questions about my childhood, I almost always can't remember the answer. I can't remember far enough back to answer the question. I usually say something like this. Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just going to have to go ask my mother because she seems to remember everything. So I'm going to put up a Zoom poll question. And it says... How good is your memory? Let's see if we can get that question on the screen. There it is. How good is your memory? Here's your choices. Photographic, pretty good, wish it were better, or don't know what I had for lunch yesterday like me. Go ahead and answer that question. And then Dustin, if you see results coming in, I won't see them. So go ahead and uh, go ahead and summarize those if you can. All right, I can. Nobody has a photographic memory. <laughs> That's because LeBron James isn't worshiping with us this morning, <laughs> including including myself. Twenty-four percent, twenty-eight percent now. Pretty good. wish it were better. 17% are like you and me. They don't know what they had for lunch yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's good. Good. No photographics. All right. So I did a little bit of digging on this subject matter because I was curious uh, into the importance of memory. And I learned a couple of things. Did you know that our memories actually help to shape who we are? They are said to make up our internal biographies. They're the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, what we've done with our lives, who we've touched, and whose lives have touched ours. Our memories are actually crucial to the essence of who we are as human beings. So it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that concerns about a declining memory actually rank near the very top of people's fears as they get older. Now, this makes a lot of sense because in a way, a loss of memory is a loss of self. So I was curious, what are the things that are good for improving your memory? Here's a list of nine things, I think we can put these on the screen, that actually improve your memory. Exercise daily, stay mentally active, make time for friends, get organized, get plenty of sleep, eat a healthy diet, practice mindfulness and meditation, maintain a healthy weight, and reduce stress. These nine things actually will help to improve your memory. So the goal of this activity was twofold. Uh, One, you cannot say that you didn't learn something today. At least I hope. (laughs) 
Um, but you should be asking another question. What does any of this trivia have to do with our biblical text this morning? And that would be a fair question. We're going to be looking at the first narrative account of the Passover, a moment that God wants the Israelites and us to remember. God even invites the Jews to ritualize the remembrance of the central event in Israel's history, the Exodus, the delivery from slavery in Egypt, so that they will never forget what God has done. Now, the Jews recall the Passover annually. It defines their core identity as the Jewish New Year begins with this celebratory meal. The Passover is also extremely important to Christians because it reminds us of a core feature of God's character, that God is a God who delivers people both then and now from oppression. And so, loving God, we ask that you would speak to us by the light of your word and by the breath of your spirit. Amen. This reading is going to come from Exodus 12, 1 through 13 and 13, 1 through 8. And if you are following along and actually reading this in your Bible, you will note that it's shortened just a tiny bit, but you should be able to figure out where we're going. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It's the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and animal, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Moses said to the people, Remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this observance in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a festival to the Lord. You shall tell your child... On that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Exodus means exit or departure. 
It's this epic story of the people of God moving from slavery to freedom. And you may remember from last week, depending on how good your memory is, of course, but Joseph was the first of his family members to enter into Egypt, ironically entering Egypt as a slave, having been sold by his own brothers. But unknown to his brothers, Joseph had become this powerful prince in Pharaoh's court. The rest of Joseph's family, about 70 of them who make up this fledgling nation of Israel, soon join Joseph as immigrants in Egypt due to the severe famine and the threat of starvation. They were welcomed into Egypt and they prospered. But then one day, everything changed. Joseph died and a new Pharaoh came to power. And the scripture says that the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph. In other words, he did not remember him. This new Pharaoh felt no sense of obligation to Joseph's family or the increasing numbers of foreigners that were living in their land. And so first the Egyptians fearing the Israelites because they, uh, this family of Joseph had now grown extremely numerous. Then in fear, they began to resent them. And then in fear and resentment, they enslaved them. They were organized into work groups, beat into submission by their taskmasters, forced to complete these massive building projects for the Egyptians. Pharaoh tried slavery. Then he ramped up his tactics, employing a strategy of selective genocide by ordering the murder of Hebrew boys at birth so that they could never grow up to turn against him and fight against him. This is the backdrop of today's reading. But we remember that God had made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Moses, promises of a land and a great nation. Well, none of these promises could come true if they remain slaves in Egypt. They had to be set free. Now, I found a commentator, a theologian, Ellen F. Davis. She contrasted the economy of Egypt with the economy of the wilderness that the Israelites are about to enter into. And I found it to be pretty helpful. Egypt's economy, of course, is built on hierarchical oppression, an economy where the abundance of food and prosperity was produced on the backs of slaves but it was enjoyed almost exclusively by the rich and powerful. In contrast, the economy of the wilderness, which would teach the people of Israel to rely on and trust in God alone as their provider and deliverer. This same kind of wilderness reliance is needed by us today whenever we enter into these periods of wilderness in our own lives. So the wilderness teaches us to trust in God more. So God brought the plagues against the Egyptians that we probably learned about if those of us that were in our Sunday school classes when we were kids, but still the Egyptians refused to let the people of Israel go. So God had Moses prepare the people for departure. It says with their sandals on their feet, with their staff in their hand, they were ready to make a run for it. Each family would, were to slaughter and eat a sheep or a goat, leaving nothing behind, wiping some of the blood on the doorpost 
of the Israelite house so that when the Egyptian firstborn were struck down, the Israelites would be spared. Here, I want to pause for a moment and just acknowledge the elephant in the room or the really troubling part of this text. When we might wish for the nonviolent resistance of Jesus, we end up with this tragic commemoration of the death of many innocent children and animals, the scripture says. And so the Passover is this mixed celebration. It's like, and the thing is, I'm not going to attempt to solve the problem of violence in this text, but I do want to point out a few things for our consideration. What's important to the author that wrote this? And the first thing that comes to mind is that Pharaoh is working against the goodness of creation. By enslaving, oppressing, and murdering, he's refusing to allow the people of Israel to flourish. And we see that Pharaoh's own ways of violence come back to bite him. His punishment is the violence that he had set in motion. It now returns full circle to engulf him and his family and his people. The hints in this text point to something that Jesus would later say to Peter. When he said to Peter, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And so the troubling issue of violence in this story and others in the Bible is not just a contemporary problem. We're not the only ones that historically have been bothered by this. There's actually a story in the Jewish Talmud that recounts this story of God getting angry and having to rebuke the angels in heaven for singing a hymn of praise when the Egyptians were drowning in the Red Sea. This Talmud story is important to me. It was probably my favorite thing that I found in my research on this passage because it reminds me that God's heart is breaking at the loss of innocent life. We should celebrate justice triumphing over and defeating evil. But the story teaches us something else, that we, uh, we do this with a heavy heart because we must learn to identify with the suffering of innocent victims of violence because I truly believe that that is also what God does. And so Moses tells the people to remember this day. He tells them that when God brings them into the promised land, that they are to remember and to commemorate this day at the beginning of each new year. And they were to tell their children about all the things that God had done for them so that the memory of this story would continue to shape the identities of all future generations. Jesus would certainly pick up on this theme in the Last Supper that he had celebrating um, with his disciples. He was celebrating this Passover meal with his closest friends using bread and wine. They were remembering what God had done, but Jesus kind of did something a little different They were also listening to Jesus talk about 
what God was about to do in the death and resurrection of Jesus. His saving blood recalls the blood of the Passover lamb that saves the people of Israel. And so the New Testament is clear that God, this is, this is the big difference. I think this is why I wanted to make this connection. Because the New Testament is clear that God took the violence of the world, this vicious cycle of violence that we looked at last week in the story of Joseph and this week as well in this story, that all of that violence was taken upon God's self on the cross so that the cycle of violence would finally once and for all be broken. And just as the Passover meal helps us to remember, so too does the communion meal that we are about to feast on on this World Communion Sunday. The story invites us to remember who God is and what God has done. It invites us to retell the story of God's deliverance to our children and to our grandchildren. And it invites us into one of the central tasks for those who place their trust in God, to actually join God in the work of dismantling injustice and oppression in all the places that we find it. To close, I was struck this week by this Jewish concept called tikkun olam. And what it means is awesome. It means the ongoing repair of the world. The ongoing repair of the world. Our world is in desperate need of repairing. We've been talking a lot about these things on Sundays. And so I'm curious if I were to ask you this question, what is one broken thing in the world today that you would like to see repaired? Tikkun Olam says that our responsibility is not only for our own moral and spiritual and material welfare, but our other responsibility is to join with God in the working uh, for the flourishing of all people everywhere, especially people that are oppressed. This is the ongoing repair of the world. We see God at work doing this and we're invited to join in that work. I hope and pray that remembering this story inspires you to want to join the work that God is already up to in the world today so that all people and the earth might flourish. Amen.